Hello and welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the vlogcast that gives you a peek inside the minds of some truly inspirational teachers. During this episode, I sit down for a chat with Christopher Such, a teacher and school leader in Peterborough who shares his experience of teaching and school leadership, provides us with an exclusive announcement of particular interest to those with an interest in the teaching of reading, as well as sharing his advice for teachers wishing to engage meaningfully with their professional development. Whether you're new to teaching or a school leader with tons of experience, then this interview is a must listen. And if you happen to be listening on your preferred podcast provider, don't miss out on the extended cut in which Chris takes on the SCK PCK tier list, ranking some of the most important pieces of subject content and pedagogical content knowledge to primary teachers. Full interviews are available from the Thinking Deeply About Primary Mathematics YouTube channel or thinkingdeeply.info, where full show notes and references can be found. Without further ado, let's spend some time thinking deeply about primary education. Cool. So thank you very much, Christopher, for joining us on Thinking Deeply About Primary Education. Yeah, pl uh, pleasure to be here. Looking forward to it. Um, so we always start with teachers in numbers. So it'll be Christopher in numbers. And um, you can only respond using numbers just to get a, to know a little bit more about you um, and get a sense of where you're from. And so the first one is years as a teacher. Can I add caveats to these numbers? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> honestly, um, like as a qualified primary teacher, 11 and a half years, uh, but about 14 and a half years in education. Number of schools? Uh, six. Last year group taught? Uh, year two. Years as an Arsenal fan? Uh, think about this one quite carefully. Uh, 29. Joyous years as an Arsenal fan? Well, that's quite, I can be quite precise with that. So, yeah, about 13. English counties lived in? Just the two. Tweets? Um, I've got this written down here. Uh, an embarrassingly high 6,770-ish. I think in, in the grand scheme of things, that's that's reasonably low. You're, you're, you're only double mine, so <laughs> that's not too bad. Yeah, I've only been sort of using Twitter for a couple of years, so, you know, it's a little bit, it's a little bit much, really. But still, you know. Blog posts? Um, oh, blog posts. Actually, I think there's about 20-ish. Blog hits? It's around slightly less, slightly shy or slightly, no, slightly more than 70,000. Impressive stuff. Yeah, most of that was in the first year and I've not really blogged much this year. So, but yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So you're, you're currently teaching in Peterborough. Tell us about your journey and how you got here. Um, okay. Um, effectively, finished my degree, um, four years of chemistry uh, and thought I wanted to do anything other than chemistry completely lacked any sense of like direction or imagination um and i think there's probably more like more teachers than would let on end up kind of drifting towards education in for the same reasons i did which was that just had no idea what what else to do got a job at my local school as a teaching assistant um in a secondary school um kind of like that um after a couple of months, ended up as a um, intervention teacher because they realised that I, hopefully, I think, they, they, for whatever reason, they thought I was capable of doing a little bit more than I was doing at the time. And towards the end of the year, ended up filling in, filling in teaching year eight maths for five or six lessons a week. 
enjoyed that, but realized from there that I was more interested in where, for want of a better phrase, the rot started because I was teaching a set of kids who hated maths and the stuff I was trying to teach them was so far above what they could do that I wanted to find out lower. So I worked, I then went to work as a teaching assistant at a primary school, decided to get my PGCE. At this point, still not completely committed to the idea of being a teacher. Just thought, you know, I'll have a trade to fall back on, like, a, like in the same way that, you know, you might learn how to be a plumber or something. But um, uh, but I did that, did my PGCE, taught for two years at a local school, was working kind of 55 to 60 hours a week, decided, no, this isn't for me, not going to do this. Uh, and while I decided what else to do with my life, I became an HLTA. And I did that for a year and that changed my, my perspective on teaching entirely because I saw so many different teachers, learned more about teaching in that year than I did on my PGCE or my first two years of teaching, saw who was doing it bad, who was doing it well. It kind of changed my expectations about what I should be doing and how I could probably still be doing a good job while not working 60 hours a week. Got back into teaching, did that for six, seven years, um, was kind of pushed without any real desire to do it into a kind of leadership position. Um, enjoyed that sort of, but missed, uh, I still worked in the classroom. Um, and then about a year and a bit ago, I was, there was an opportunity to work at a school um, near to me, which had a leadership opportunity. It was a chance to teach only maths or so I thought it didn't turn out that way, but um, yeah. And now I'm a senior leader who's basically, seem to be in charge of curriculum, CPD, um, uh, and teaching and learning generally at a school with 850-odd children. Uh, loving it. You know, love the responsibility. Always wanting to avoid responsibility. Now I have a bit of it. I'm like, what more? Like, I can't get my heart. But, you know, that's just how I am, I guess. But that's it. That's the whole story. I didn't know you were in a secondary a secondary teaching assistant as well as primary. Um, yeah, that's how I started. Uh, Tell me, what's, what's the difference? Um, you know, is, is, it a, is the experience completely removed or are there a lot of similarities? The, fun, the, the, the biggest difference you notice, like straight away, is uh, I think primary teachers take it for granted. The idea that children at primary school want you to like them, want to impress you, even the, like the most challenging children, it takes a little a bit of relationship building before that they, you know, they, they, they want to impress you. They want you on side. Secondary school, immediately by year seven, children recognise that no, 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 that's not the way to do things. Certainly at the secondary school I worked in. Um, and so everything becomes much more, I don't want to say confrontational because I had, I actually really enjoyed working in the secondary school. I think teenagers get a very unfair rap. I think they're much more, uh, understanding and decent than I remember being as a teenager. Um, but at the same time, that general idea of having to win children over and having to work in a completely different, yeah, the, the key difference is that kind of, that relationship. Also the idea we forget as a secondary teacher, you only see these children for, depending on what subject you're teaching, like two, two or three hours a week maximum. And this idea that you're going to build up the same sort of relationship, that you're going to be able to deal with the nuances in their behaviour in the same way that a primary school teacher can is just, it, it's absurd. Um, and it, it shows the value of uh, a hugely underrated component, I think, um, in secondary schools of the tutors, the people who do that um, 
the a good form tutor or a good head of year who develops that pastoral relationship is so much more valuable because at primary school we have that as a class teacher but it's you're so dependent on um, a really good form tutor or a really good head of year at secondary school to take care of a lot of that pastoral stuff but those are the key differences I'd say you know kids not wanting to impress is the big one nice yeah I never really considered that actually that makes, that makes a lot of sense I can see that and um, we've got a model where a lot of our new teachers will have previously worked at the school as a teaching assistant um, and I, I quite like the model because I remember when I started and I had to learn everything from scratch in terms of, you know, the, the logistical sort of aspects of being a teacher. Whereas, whereas if you are working in a school and then working there while you're training, I think you've almost got a, a year's advantage on most teachers. It's, you know, I think that's a, it's a model that I think a lot of schools could benefit from from adopting. Yeah, I, I, mean, I mean, I think working specifically in the school you're going to work in so you can develop an understanding of routines, et cetera, et cetera, is is valuable. I would say, um, even if you're working as a teaching assistant in a different school, I think there's huge, there's a lot, a great deal of value in that as well. Just understanding um, basic bits and pieces, you know, how quickly you need to take the register, how you can develop a relationship, um, how how far you can go with um, your sense of humour in different in different year groups. Um, as much as I think as a golden rule, teachers should basically always avoid sarcasm there's always a, a you know, there's a, there's a bit of irony in the sense of humor you can have with year six that just falls flat on its face in year two and being a teaching assistant particularly one as i was that worked across loads of classrooms in primary school um gives you a really you know i think a really powerful sense of that yeah yeah i think it's i think it's a good model um, particularly when at a time when not you know, it's not necessarily a competitive market, is it? And um, so, the more we can grow our own teachers, I think that's yeah. really the the better. And um, well, the school I currently work in um, has um, a fair few teachers who have been teaching assistants for a while, have learned the ropes, have decided to you go via Teach East and become qualified teachers. And um, yeah, you can see, I think they are so much better prepared for um, teaching than a lot of um, NQTs that I've worked with in the past. And again, this isn't a slight on those NQTs, but having worked in a school for a year or two years or three years, people hit the ground running to the extent that there are NQTs that I work with who have been teaching assistants before where I think it's really unjust that you're on an NQT wage because you are doing such a high standard job. You are not, uh, you're not an inexperienced teacher in the same way that, say, someone else is. So I think really interested in the classroom and in particular, what the four most prominent features of a Christopher Such lesson might be. Okay, you're going to notice, I'm like, I've actually got notes. I mean, I'm not even going to hide it, it's so obvious. But um, yeah, because you mentioned that this would be something that came up, so I thought I'd prepare. Um, now, having... Um, I'm not, I'm not sure if it's okay to reveal this. I mean, I've, I've listened to podcasts that you've done previously with um, other fine educators, um, and a lot of the focus there was on things that I do really value, um, the cognitive psychology side of things, frankly, the stuff that, we've, um, that I've come to uh, agree with over the last few years or things that make sense in, in my practice. Um, 
Taking those as a given, though, because in a lot of cases, those things like, you know, retrieval practice um, in terms of making it, taking advantage of desirable, desirable difficulties, minimizing cognitive load, all that kind of stuff. I'm going to put that to kind of one side because I feel that that's something that, while let, let's take that as a given. And I'll talk about the things that I think would jump out at you, perhaps, um, if you were to see my lesson. So the first thing that I think would jump out, because you know me um, a little bit, is the extent to which I think there is a large element of acting in teaching. Um, and I don't mean um, like being pretending to be a CBBS presenter. I don't, I don't mean that sort of thing. But I mean the extent to which there is um, a pretense of enthusiasm about everything you are teaching. If I'm teaching um, metamorphic rocks on a Thursday afternoon, if I'm not giving at least some sense to children that, wow, this is really worth knowing, you know, because of X, Y, and Z, then I'm failing a little bit. And it doesn't really matter my opinion on metamorphic rocks. I need to be acting out that, that enthusiasm. Equally, there's that sense of acting where, you know, it's going to sound a little bit blunt perhaps, but you don't necessarily immediately take to all children. Some children, because of their behavior, because of their circumstances, whatever reason it is, you, you just think, oh, am I really going to have to teach this kid again? But you can never let that show. Not even for a second. You let that show, it's game over and deservedly so. So pretending all the time, like unfailingly, that, you've, you, that you want to be spending time with these children. It doesn't, again, it doesn't matter if it's Thursday afternoon, you've had a long day, you've got a migraine, it doesn't matter. You have to be pretending that this is one of the best, you know, you love your job, you love this part of the week, you love teaching these kids. So the first thing I'd say is a, uh, a surprising level of um, pretend enthusiasm would be the first thing that you'd notice in every one of my lessons. And it's going to, I know it sounds, it doesn't, it's the sort of thing that doesn't get talked about much on edu Twitter and it isn't the sort of thing because we get focused rightly so on the value of research. But I think there are elements of, um, education that we don't get talked about enough for this exact reason and that we kind of take for granted and that kind of um yeah that, that, that sense of acting is the first thing that i would say is a fundamental part of my lessons um second thing i would say adapting like i would i think that excuse the generalization but i think that teachers progress through certain stages at least it, or at least i did the first stage of my career was where um, most of my lessons didn't go to plan. I, I'd have a plan and I'd pitch it wrong or I wouldn't understand the, the, where the kids were at there in terms of their background knowledge or I would rush, rush an explanation or whatever it would be and the lessons wouldn't go to plan. You'd look at my, I'd look at my plan at the end of the lesson and go, oh, okay, that, I didn't do that at all. Then I got vaguely competent and then my lessons would go bang in like bullet points you know i'd hit them i'd literally plan zero to five minutes do this five to 12 minutes do this and i wouldn't be far off when i look back at my plan because i knew the class i'd worked in year six for, for a few years now i knew what i was teaching everything i taught i'd taught four or five times that was the second stage and it was very useful for offset inspections at the time and in observations because you could make it you could have everything you knew what lessons would be impressive you knew what would go to plan that sort of thing and you'd avoid teaching certain things when you're being observed. The third stage in my career, and I think for most teachers, I hope, is that when you then go off plan again. So 
you're confident enough in what you're doing and you've had enough practice and you realize what teaching is enough to go, oh, okay, so here's my plan, but it might not happen like this. I might get 10 minutes in and need to teach something completely different. I might get 20 minutes in and realize that I need to take a little bit more or a little bit less time with this. So um, I'd like to think that the third thing you'd see is, sorry, the second thing that you would that you would see about my lesson is that, it didn't fit exactly with the plan. If you were given a plan, you'd look at it and go, oh, okay, ah, I wasn't expecting that. So acting and adapting would be the first two. The third one that I mentioned is kind of quite linked to the first, I guess. Um, I think it's something that's massively undervalued in education. Um, it's the, it, when we talk about relationships, I, I prefer to get into nitty gritty about what we mean by relationships. I'm talking, this is more about relationships with the whole class. I, I would say depressurizing strategies. Strategies that take into account that children feel pressure because they're in front of their peers. Children, you can go to, into any classroom, like year four classroom, and you can ask whatever child you think is most disconnected from their social sphere. And you say to them, Who's the, who do you think is the best at maths in the room? Or who do you think is the cleverest? And they will pick out those academic children like that. They have, they have no problem picking that out. Children are geniuses of social hierarchies. And anything that, as a teacher, you have to be combating that social hierarchy constantly, taking the pressure off. I can't, like, 20 or 30 times a year, I will ask, I will perhaps ask a question in a way that in retrospect, in immediate hindsight, I think, no, that wasn't good. A child will maybe get something wrong in a way that I think is um might i don't want to say embarrass them but they that might make them feel a bit of pressure in front of their peers and i will immediately say oh that's really interesting i got that's that's exactly what i thought i got it wrong in exactly that way every single time it's uh, like it, 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 it applies to the academic side but it also applies to all the other stuff like with you know mufty days when there's the one child who turns up in school uniform and you immediately make a point in front of the class of saying yeah, I, I, I forgot my Mufti today as well. You know, you, you're always thinking about how to take the pressure off the learning. It's really interesting because I, I saw a thread on Twitter the other day that talked about cold calling and about how someone, and it was, quite, it was a sensible thread, someone had said they didn't like cold calling because of um, it related to maths anxiety and this sort of thing. I, I use cold calling. I, I ask children around the room all the time. Around, around, that's, what I, that's my preferred status quo questioning strategy but I'm happy to use that because I'm constantly trying to take the pressure off children in every other way imaginable um so yeah a variety of depressurizing strategies would be something I, th I think would be overtly obvious in my classroom because you would hear me saying things that you know were white lies about myself mainly in order to make children who either got something wrong or who were had maybe put forward a suggestion that other children didn't agree with to make them feel like that was not only acceptable or normal but that that was good um i'd say the fourth obvious thing and again i apologize that none of these things are cog side but i got a feeling that your other guests will cover this quite strongly volume control um i it took me a few years to learn this but um i i think that children Talking, I was always one of these teachers who talk loud and had loud classes, and I couldn't help it. And when I say loud, I, don't, I like the fact that children should be talking, should be engaging with one another. Um, 
but at the same time, the volume up, 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 and certain children understandably feel uncomfortable. And it, it, it drags a teacher down as well when a class is too loud. And it was only when I started seeing other teachers as an HLTA who would be talking at a high pitch volume. And then as soon as the class was too loud, they were in a whisper. And they were in a whisper for a minute. And you thought, blooming out. Listen to the way that every child has reacted to your volume control. You started to whisper and they're, they're almost silent. Their conversations are still happening, but they're right down. Um, so really over the top um, grades of volume control in my voice would be, I think, the fourth thing that w- would jump out at you um, in my lessons. I had thought to mention the idea that I constantly make little asides to how something connects to another piece of learning because I do that more than I should. But that, if that would be like, so if those four things are the four things that I think are quite good about my lessons, the fifth thing is something that I have to take care to not let it be detrimental because I, you, you know me, I will, oh, 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 it's a side street. Let's go and talk about that. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm off on a tangent all the time and I have to rein that in with the kids. But yeah, in short, acting, adapting, depressurizing strategies and volume control would be the four things that I like to think you would observe in my lesson. Uh, that's awesome. And um, I think what you've given is a really round picture. And the most important phrase, I think, is take for granted. Because I'm sitting here and thinking about the first five years of my career and how actually remembering when these things became sort of part of what I did. Um, you know, in particular, managing volume levels in classes. I remember at the start, um, not having necessarily any strategies, but then now don't even have to move. You know, I can my eyebrows can signal <laughs> the signal yeah. that something interesting is about to happen. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting that um, I think, for example, um, we've, I think we, you and I have talked before about um, the value of something a, a manual like Teach Like a Champion, which has lots of it I agree with, bits and pieces I'm not so sure about. I mean, effectively, Teach Like a Champion was a this is the best version of what currently happens in American schools with all the strengths and limitations that, that comes with that, mainly strengths, admittedly. Um, but the value of that or a value of a great deal of that is that it does kind of tell to teachers in minute detail a lot of these strategies that I picked up through experience. And someone might say, oh, well, why do, why do you need it then? You picked it up through experience. So, well, yeah, but I picked it up by my fourth or fifth year of teaching. I would really like to have known that in my first, second or third, even if it's so that I can say, oh, I like this one, this one works for me, this one works for me, this one, this one doesn't work for me. Just having that kind of, you know, bedrock of strategies from the beginning uh, might have been um, a little bit more useful than what I had. Also, just reflecting on what you say about taking something for granted, a little bit controversial here, perhaps. I think that um, having listened to your previous guests and known them personally, I think there's a slight difference in perspective about the, the, what we what's called on Twitter the prog and trad divide and the way that things the way that things were previously. Um, it, because I've maybe been around the block a little bit longer, I share almost all of the um, the same cynicism about the nonsense like I've, I've been I've, I've taught maths in guided groups and I've, t- I've taught everything via Kagan strategies and had to have thinking hats stuck to my wall and all of that nonsense I've, I've been there so I appreciate the cynicism 
I, I would I would make an argument though that there are certain elements of the previous prog orthodoxy that we take for granted that we are some positives that we are building upon. And a lot of them are the sort of things that I stated as the four things that would be in my lessons, that sense of acting, that unconditional um, regard for children. And I'm not saying that those aren't part of the current orthodoxy, but they are certainly things that are talked about significantly less. Um, and if you excuse a bad football analogy, <laughs> and I'm, I'm going to go for it anyway I thought about this earlier I like the analogy I'm going to go with it Roberto Martinez took over an Everton team years ago and effectively took over a side an Everton side that had been really dour defensively under David Moyes could defend were organised were brilliant he took them over he added some attacking flair and suddenly they looked like world beaters they looked like they were going to be a Champions League team and then the following season it kind of fell apart and the part of the reason for that is that that, that glorious one season of success that uh, Martinez had with the Everton side was because he was able to add all of this new stuff and take for granted the stuff, that, the positives that had come before. I partly worry that in our current um, way of focusing on Cogsci and all of the positive parts of the, the, most of the discussion that you see on Edgy Twitter that we are a little bit in danger of taking some of those things um, for granted of the previous orthodoxy. And we won't really notice that they're taken for granted until a set of NQTs come through that aren't doing them. Um, but again, that's perhaps just me overthinking things a little. No, I think you're spot on. Um, one of the things that you always talk about um, that I hold in my head when I'm trying to decide on whether or not to explore something is the idea of opportunity cost. Um, and so I won't, I won't make a decision with regards to practice based on whether it's from the traditional school or from the progressive school, but rather what's going to be the impact and how much is this going to cost me in probably my most precious commodity, my time. And I think, yeah, I think obviously we get this very black and white world um, of Twitter where you read it on one side or the other, but my interpretation is that everyone is actually somewhere in the middle, a mishmash of lots of different ideas. And I think, um, you know, it's not necessarily the most accurate reflection of them. Um, yeah, I agree. I think there's also an extent to which, um, and I could be wrong about this, but I've seen um, a lot of teachers that you would consider and I would consider to be quite proggy, you know, that they're, they're they, they, they want to do everything through talk. They want children to discover stuff, et cetera, et cetera. And the reason I worry a little bit less about them misinterpreting things than the trad side misinterpreting things is because the reality of the prog teacher, from what I've seen, is that as soon as they're tired or frustrated or busy, which are inevitable as a teacher for large stretches, they just end up doing kind of what we'd call trad teaching anyway. Like... It's, it's often, I often think we, we're, what we're worrying about is what happened in lesson observations because I've, I've seen the proggiest, as a teaching assistant, you see these teachers who espouse particular ideals that you might associate with a progressive view of education. And yes, they are on show for their lesson observations and yes, they're on show for 10% of the time, but the rest of the time they are standing at the front delivering material like the rest like the best of us so yeah I, I i don't think that there's um i think one of the reasons why 
the debate is much greyer. It's not that there aren't worthwhile discussions to be had about the two sides of things. I mean, I think having that people bemoan the, di- the dichotomy, I actually think it's quite a useful rubric through which to hash out and discuss education. I mean, in the end, our, our ideological enemies aren't the people who disagree, who, who passionately disagree with us about education. Our ideological enemies as such are those who are in education who just don't really have a view either way because they're not that fussed. They're just, you know, they're just, they're just there to teach. Going back to your question about secondary school teachers, um, they are, on the, on the whole, they are just as dedicated and passionate and conscientious as primary school teachers. Absolutely. I would say the one difference is, from my experience, there's a 5% of secondary teachers who really phone it in in a way that I've never seen a primary school teacher do. But again, that's just, I've owned, I, I, that's observations of kind of being in 30 or 40 different classrooms in a secondary school at most. So take that with a pinch of salt. Yeah. And um, I think, thinking back to your second point, it's probably the one I find the most difficult to keep a rein on whenever I'm modeling in someone's class. Because obviously, with, you know, over, you know, over an extended period of time, you develop that fluency where you can, you know exactly how many ways you want a lesson to go. But when you're modeling teaching to someone, you've almost got to be uber precise about, you know, they're not going to see the thought process that, that, that you did in 30 seconds to decide what, you know, you're going to change direction and, and move in a different way. So it's one of the things I, I want to encourage it. And, um, but I do find it most difficult and I have to go back and cover exactly every, every decision made with the teacher just to make sure that they've got a handle on where I was coming from. Because like for the last four years, I've been teaching and supporting teachers maths across three schools. And so I've, like you said, done the same lessons multiple times, you know, for, for various different teachers. And, and the more you do something, the more fluid you can become with them, with the changes and the adaptations. And yeah, but it, you know, just thinking about that, it's something that uh, it's something that I actively seek to control. Um, when it, That's when an interesting I'm point. On. I mean, I actually, I, I actually wonder the extent to which um, that's a necessary progression. That teachers can't skip out the part where no, I'm going to make this lesson go to plan. And maybe it might, even if that's only for a brief period in like their second or third year or whatever it is in, of teaching. But you almost need that sense of control before you can go, oh, okay, now I can loosen the reins a little bit. Now I can go off piste a little bit, um, which makes, again, and again, as, as someone who does sometimes deliver CPD to a whole school, um, often, in fact, it does give you kind of pause for thought because obviously if I say to a group of teachers, well, what I really want you to do is to be um, adapting in the moment what you do to make sure it meets the needs of the children, which, which sounds fantastic. It sounds like, of course, that's what you should do. But if you're an NQT who hasn't yet been able to get a lesson to go to plan, who hasn't yet been able to work out why things are going wrong, maybe you need that, con- that's that controlled step before you can you know, let things out again. I mean, it reminds me of that. Um, I can't remember where I first saw it, but when people talk about changing school culture, change, really changing what goes on across a school, first you have to kind of centralise and then to, to get kind of a rein on things and then you can decentralise. Um, I think maybe there's an extent to that in, in, in the individual classroom as well as, you know, 
across a school. Yeah. Um, and I think this segues quite well into the the next question. So I'm interested because obviously most recently you have been sort of taking up extra leadership responsibility. How do you try and instigate um, change on a school-wide level? Well, I'm going to skip ahead in my notes here because uh, that is, I mean, it's such a, it's such a devilish question. The first thing to make absolutely clear here is that um, I, in terms of making what I consider to be kind of school-wide changes, um, this is something that I've got a couple of years of experience with at most, you know, two, two and a half. If you're talking about, you know, changing maths across a school or changing reading across a school, a bit more. But in terms of um, instituting changes kind of across the board in terms of curriculum, this sort of thing, it's something that I'm still finding my way with. So that that caveat, so that that caveat out there, I'm happy now to speak in a little bit more uh, depth. So um, let me just find my notes. <laughs> and, okay, so the first thing I would say is that you have to. It's, it's, I apologise anything that sounds obvious, but it wasn't obvious me when I first did it first thing you have to do is observe before you even consider making changes you have to not just see the, the picture of what you want to change you have to see everything that's around it because if you look at I don't know something that's going on with the history curriculum and you think oh this needs this needs changing and you kind of plow ahead with it and then you find that actually there are some major issues with phonics or maths well, that, that history, history is a wonderful subject, really valuable. Compared to phonics, it can wait. I mean, if that's something that's going to be taking up uh, mental space for teachers when you want them to be focusing on CPD relating to how they teach phonics, then, like I say, it can wait. Um, so the first thing you have to do is observe. You have to make sure that you have a decent grasp of the big picture. A part of that as well is discussions. You have to speak before you start doing anything you have to speak with teachers on the ground. You have to speak with um, other leaders across the school because so often you'll find that you're going to try and do something and someone else will say, oh, yeah, we, we tried something with that, very similar, but it didn't work because of X, Y, and Z. And that can be, you know, that's three, that can be three months saved. That can be hours and hours of teachers' hard effort saved because you were willing to have those conversations. Um I mean, I mean, this is um, the third thing I'd say you have to do in order to make a whole school change is you have to seek expert advice. If you're not asking someone outside of your school who's already done this, then you are missing an opportunity. I, I mean, I don't mean to uh, espouse the virtues of edgy Twitter too much, but it's been so valuable for me for that. Just to be able to say, I'm about to do this in a school, or I think I am, what are the pros and cons? Because... I mean, I don't think it's too, it's overly humble to say that every time people will say stuff that makes me go, oh yeah, of course. Oh yeah, no, I needed to think about that and I hadn't thought about that. Every single time that happens. And that's just, you know, people know things that I don't. Like obviously loads and loads of stuff that I don't. So being able to ask, you know, when it comes to mathematics, being able to ask people with, you know, extensive experience or when it comes to reading or whatever, that has to be, before you ever even consider making a change across a whole school, if you've not asked someone who knows their stuff and has already tried that outside your school, then, as I say, you're missing a trick. Um, I think once you've decided upon something, I think there has to be a sense of uh, honesty 
with teachers and about what it is you're trying to do. They have to understand the principles behind it. Um, there is an extent still, I think, and maybe this is going to sound dishonest, uh, as perhaps me, my description of uh, teaching as acting might sound dishonest. I think there's an extent to which you have to sell things um, because every change that you can possibly make is going to be, you know, even if even the things that you think are going to have really positive outcomes over the longer term, a lot of them, people don't, a lot of the time, people don't like change. And people are understandably go, going to want to stick with something they're already quite comfortable with. So, yeah, you, you have to sell it, in a, but in, in an honest way. So I don't mean salesmanship as in telling any lies. I mean, you have to really make clear what the benefits of this thing are going to be and how, as a team, you're going to minimise any, any minimise any possible downsides. The next thing is that you then have to be involved. I've worked in schools where leaders roll something out and then just leave you to get on with it. And they're, 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 they're like, job done. You know, they've ticked the box. They think that kind of the planning and the prep and the C and the initial CPD of delivering something is at most the first 20% of the job. The hard yards, that hard 80% is being in classrooms and modeling teaching, something I, to my shame, haven't had the chance to do much of this year because of COVID restrictions, but I intend to do as soon as I possibly can. But being in, um, if it's things relating to planning, being in the planning meetings, you know, turning up, being present, engaging with the difficulties. The reality is that when you go into these meetings and when you go and teach in the class, you then have to engage with the nitty gritty details and difficulties that are, they're a bit of a drag, frankly, when you've got this great big bold idea and you roll it out and then there are nitty gritty details that means that it doesn't work quite as well as you want it to yet. It's really tempting just to go, well, yeah, not my problem anymore. When in reality, you just have to, you have to be involved. You have to, you have to be, you have to walk the walk. And if, if you're not willing to walk the walk, then you shouldn't really be rolling out change across the school. That said, I do appreciate that it might be the case, for example, in small schools that um, you might have a head teacher who has a relatively small teaching responsibility um, who may not have the time to, to be involved. I appreciate that there is an element of good fortune in the situation I work in, whereby I have a good amount of time to, it's a key part of my role, to be in classrooms, supporting teachers, etc. But if you have got the time to do that and you don't, then uh, I don't think that's really tolerable. And, uh, it sounds obvious, but in terms of whole school change, not too much at once. You, you know, you, it's that old expression, you know, you try and catch five rabbits and you catch none. You know, it's, <laughs> I, might, I might have uh, ruined the expression a little bit there, but the gist stands, I hope. But that, that, like deciding on what your priority is, focusing on that, making sure that that is somewhat embedded or, or embedded enough before you, you know, bring in whatever the next priority is. It sounds obvious, but it hasn't seemingly been obvious in many of the schools I've previously worked in. So, yeah, don't want to take that for granted. I guess the last thing, uh, again, obvious, but not necessarily always based on what I've seen, is a sense of gratitude to the staff who are doing it. Because in the end, even if you're involved even if you demonstrate it and model it and you put CPD in place and you're supportive of teachers, et cetera, et cetera, school change isn't done by school leaders. School leaders 
map it out and they have an idea and they talk things through, et cetera, et cetera. But then the change is done by classroom teachers. Any significant change in a school is done by the teachers in the classroom. In the end, you are facilitating their work. So if it works, then it's then be grateful to your teachers. Express that gratitude clearly because they have made it work. The other side of that, and this is you know just what leadership is about, I think, if it fails, it's on you. <laughs> if it succeeds, it's on them. And if it doesn't work, then you have to bite the bullet and say, no, this, this, is, this is on me, it didn't work. And, 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 and holding those two ideas in your head, having the humility to recognise that it is never your achievement, obviously never your achievement. It is the achievement of other people and you are fortunate enough to support them in that achievement um, is something that all school leaders should have in the forefront of their minds. But yeah, that's it. So observe, discuss, take expert advice, sell it honestly, uh, make sure teachers know the principles, be involved, not too, don't do too much at once, once, and express gratitude for the people actually making the change. So eight things. So just, just that, just those eight things. <laughs> no, I think, um, I think the issue you describe where you talk about, um, you've got that initial input and then not much else happens. Um, I think that's quite prevalent because I, I, I've been reading books about the American education system and that, that has come up. You know, I've, I saw um, I saw a Twitter thread about someone was asking about the what would people think about someone who did a lot, a role a lot similar to what we do, you know, where you're there to work day by day with them, um, with teachers. And there were quite a lot of people who didn't want that um, because it would have felt like having Ofsted in, I think was one of the quotes that they said, and Ofsted yep. in your classroom every day. And I didn't get involved in the conversation, but I immediately felt they've, whatever experience they've had, the, the leader has missed the most fundamental part. And that's to, like you say, embody what, what the change that has been made and to almost remove it from the accountability process, you know, because I think in normal times, and actually to be fair, during, during the pandemic as well, I've been in quite a few classes where it's allowed, and I'll be I'll be teaching with six or seven teachers in the one week, you know, normally, and they buy in because they soon see that the feedback they're given or the conversations we have are removed from, you know, any talk of accountability, pay rises, you know, and um, those kind of things. And I think, you know, as you've described, you know, there are a lot of features there but they almost make sure that you're bringing as many people along with you as possible and people want to work in that kind of environment. So I think your teachers are lucky um, to have you with those considerations. Um, because you're I hope they would feel that way, but I think that's probably generous. Um, I think a really important point you make about accountability there is, I mean, thinking about the last few years and when we talk about you know, thinking hats and all that rubbish and learning styles, I think that in terms of the effects long-term on education, that is minimal compared to the toxic accountability that has existed within education. I, I'm going to caveat what I say by saying it is an, it's obviously unacceptable if someone isn't competent enough and doing the work they should do in the classroom. It's, it's unacceptable for them to be in the classroom and there needs to be procedures in place to make sure that they no longer have responsibility for educating children. That goes without saying, and everything that I say from now has that caveat as a, underlining it. That said, 
I've come across in my time far too many school leaders who when if you said, OK, so you want to institute whole school change, what's your first step? And their first response involves words like deadwood. So I've got to get rid of the deadwood. Got to get rid of the deadwood. Which and I, I'm not going to, you know, pussyfoot around the issue. I appreciate that a shortcut to improving an individual school might be driving out teachers that you don't think are that are adequate. You know, that are borderline adequate. You know, but we are in an education system which isn't. We, we, we haven't got teachers, qualified, excellent teachers, queuing up outside at schools because they can't get jobs. This isn't, I'm certainly not in the city I live in, in Peterborough, you are not going to have 30 applications for the same teaching job. So the idea that you improve a school by getting rid of the deadwood, yeah, good for that school, but completely useless in terms of like the, the education system as a whole. In terms of the education system as a whole, the responsibility, first and foremost, of leaders is to take what you've got and improve it, to take the teachers you have and if they're, if they're borderline competent, help them to be competent. If they're adequate, make them improve them. It, it, that is our first and foremost, our responsibility. And the discussion, I think we are entirely focused on the wrong level of improvement as, um, as, a, education, as, as, an, as a society when it comes to education. We talk about things in terms of school. It's a zero-sum competitive environment. And so we say, how do I improve this school? Well, if your solution to how you improve that school is indirectly like harming the, um, the prospects of schools around you, then I don't give a crap. I think you, you, you shouldn't. That's not how you should improve schools. Yes, like I say, the caveat, incompetent teachers, the rare cases of incompetent teachers that you just think, no, there's no way these make it in a profession, in the profession. Okay, I get on board. Yeah, you've got to have accountability procedures in place. But nine times out of 10, when I've seen teachers forced out of schools because they are considered to be borderline adequate, they haven't left the profession. They've just gone to someone else's school. So congrats for getting rid, rid of them. But I have a, like so much more respect for the people who take those teachers and actually rejuvenate them, that make them into competent um, teachers that are doing a decent job because that's how the whole system improves. Sorry, I know that's a bit of a rant there, but I, I hear conversations and I see even like unashamed conversations online about, well, you've got to clear out the deadwood. So, like, okay, that's, that, that, that shows, is that such a small view of your responsibility as an educator. Your responsibility as an educator is to the, the, the school system. It isn't just to your school and it's, the worst thing about the recent toxic accountability that we have, particularly for leaders, is that we've made them focus so precisely on their own school only. And I appreciate that that's, there's a necessary element of that. You've got to focus on your school. But if you're not considering how that impacts the larger school system, then why do you in education? No, I think from a human perspective as well, you know, and it's not it's not necessarily a, a great situation to be in, you know, to have to question this decision that most people have wanted to do for most of their lives. Um, and, you know, originally thinking deeply about primary mathematics was going to be no teacher left behind. Um, because yeah, love, love that title. Love that title. I mean, I appreciate why you didn't go with it. I like thinking deeply, but yeah. Well, no, well, originally it was going to be general, you know, basically the idea that, 
we most, if not all, can teach with the, with the right support. And then, obviously, as my role in mathematics developed, um, so, so did the, the focus of the book. But, you know, the first four years of my career, I was poor to average, you know, um, and, and it, I could very easily have walked away after two years, you know. Um, but I just, I, I decided when I was 10 that I wanted to teach and I was just going to work as hard as I possibly could until I got halfway decent at it, you know, so I, I totally get that. And I think um, I think there are a lot more schools now that understand that, um, you know, and I think perhaps the it coincides with, it was almost peak Ofsted um, and peak performance, whereas now schools are allowed to be themselves a lot more. Um, and so we've got room for the introverted teacher or room for the person who wants to specialize in one thing really well. And um, yeah, so I, I can, I can totally get on board. And I think as a society, yeah. we're, we're much better off when we treat all of our, all of our sort of members um, as if they can improve. I think there's also like mentioning before this element of, you know, we do, we are short on teachers. I think while an education, education, education system is short on teachers, there has to be room and, you know, by the, using the word in its correct sense, there has to be room for the adequate teacher. There has to be room in, in an education system that lacks teachers. There has to be room for the adequate teacher who only sees it as a job. Who's like, yeah, I'll, I'll put in my 45 hours a week. I'll be conscientious in those hours. But to be honest, teaching isn't my life. It's just a job I do. You know, if we end up with like a, 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 a swathe of teachers that desperately want to join the profession and can't get in, then yeah, maybe it's time to have conversations with those people who are just doing it sort of as a job because, you know, there are others that really are passionate about it. But that there has to be a little bit of room, I think, for the adequate teacher. Equally, as much as I appreciate that the right view, the obviously the right view is every teacher should want to improve constantly. If I see a teacher who's 25 years in the profession doing a perfectly good job, and they say to me, you know what, I'm just pretty good at what I do. And um, I've got other priorities in my life. You know, I've got three kids. You know, one of them's really struggling with X, Y, and Z at the moment. And I'm, I'm, I just want to turn up and carry on being good at my job. Is that okay? On the, on the down low, I'm going to be happy to say to them, yeah, that's, that's, that's okay. I mean, there are things I'm going to want you to keep up with. I'm going to make sure that, that you have a decent quality CPD still. But the idea that every teacher has to be desperately thirsty to improve while a, a noble aim, I, I don't think that necessarily reflects um, over the longer term that that necessarily has the best impact on our education system. If we don't quietly and subtly acknowledge the idea that good teachers doing an adequate job and getting by isn't the end of the world. Yeah, <laughs> I think some schools would kill for good teachers doing a, <laughs> a good job. Yeah, yeah, indeed. <clears throat> cool. So the next question, Christopher, is perhaps an exclusive um, announcement because it is. Yeah, nice that. Later this year, your debut, um, your debut publication, the, the Art and Science of Teaching Primary Reading, is going to be published by Sage. Um, and I suppose my question is, why does the world need this book? 
Yeah, I mean, my immediate response to that is, oh, okay, well, the world obviously doesn't need my book. <laughs> you know, it's just, but you know, putting false humility to one side, like, I, I wrote it because I felt it was needed. I had personal issues, kind of. I'm, I'm going to, you know, probably divulge a little bit more than than I need to hear. Um, I, you know, I'm increasingly physically disabled. And this summer just gone was possibly, I was thinking to myself, this might be my last chance to get out in the sun, play a bit of golf. The golf, the golf courses are open, but I couldn't wait another year of working with trainee teachers at Teach East, work with them. And then when five or six of them at least say to me, well, is, you talk about this reading science stuff. Where where can I read about this in a digestible fashion? Can you recommend me a book? And me having to go, uh, I want that book. It, it doesn't seem to exist. There are a glut of books on the market. I think there is a glut of edu books about cognitive psychology. You can find 20 different books that will talk to you about um, about retrieval practice and um, about cognitive load theory. But when you come to individual subjects, even something as important as reading, you end up with these two sorts of book. There are, and these, and these are both good sorts of book, but they don't fulfill the purpose that what I hope my book does fulfill. There are books like Language at the Speed of Sight um, by uh, Mark Steidenberg, which are effectively, here's the science behind reading. I'm not an educator, but I hope this is useful. And it is, it's a great book. And then there are books by teachers who have worked in education for a while who say, I did this with my kids. It sort of worked, I hope. So read this and, and never the twain shall meet. What my book is effectively is uh, the reading science um, or the science. I'm not a fan of the phrase reading science hugely, but the research that, that there's the, the mountains of research that there is in, uh, in reading, the, the con what is a consensus position on so many issues in reading amongst reading experts, it's that through the lens of someone who was taught reading to every age group from year six down to reception over kind of 14 years in education. Um, it, try, it, it tries to be concise. I've tried to make it as like as, as, as blunt and to the point as it can possibly be. I mean, from the outset, the idea was it's meant to serve as a jumping off point for leaders and reading coordinators who want to read more, but, and I'll have failed if the book doesn't do this, but it should also be a book that if that's the only book that a reading a senior leader or a reading coordinator or an NQT, that if, they, if that's the only book that they read, they'll still be able to make significant ch changes to their school's reading and their classes reading that will have an impact on outcomes. That's, that's the, so the, in short, the reason I think um, the world needs the book, though that is a very highfalutin phrase for, <laughs> for what it is, um, I think is the fact that teachers are short on time and, um, and yet the most important thing they do is teach reading. And often we don't know a great deal about how children learn to read and what the reading evidence suggests about it. So we, I've heard teachers talk about reading fluency, but how many of them know that there is a consensus on how to develop reading fluency and, and about the importance of repeated oral reading. How many people have had CPD that talks about how you can implement that from year two all the way up to year six? And, you know, how much of that should take place depending on children's um, aptitude at a given point. 
Um, we talk about phonics. You know, everyone knows the phrase, oh, systematic synthetic phonics. Well, fantastic. Okay, so if you know what systematic synthetic phonics is, well, do you know what that is if you don't know what, what analytic phonics is? Do you know what that is if you don't know, if you haven't, like, discussed the alternatives? Um, yeah, the, the book attempts to tackle every single thing that I think a, 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 a teacher should know, but in particular also reading coordinators and reading leads should know. It's maybe I've been a bit um, bold in trying to uh, uh, make it work for so many different audiences, but it sh it's aimed at the NQT as, and the trainee teacher as much as it's aimed at the head teacher who wants to get a, a handle on reading in their school. Um, I think it's decent. I hope it is. Well, that's really no doubt um, that it'll be a really important work because, you know, and maybe I did specialise in maths um, quite early on, but I managed to go through maybe 13 years where I, I was teaching children to read, but to the extent that I've seen you explain, um, it was a far cry and I, I really could have done with that book, you know, um, when, when I started teaching, but equally as a school leader, um, I will be passing on, um, you know, that uh, the advice that uh, anyone who's responsible for literacy or for school-wide, you know, sort of reading, um, that they will need to read it because I think with it connecting to everything else in the curriculum, you know, your ability to learn history, your ability, in particular your ability to learn, learn anything, is becomes event at some point dependent on the need to be able to read. And so it's that reading for learning that people describe. Um, I think, yeah, it, de it definitely deserves a lot more attention. And I think this this book will be very, very important for a lot of teachers. Um, I hope so. I mean, I, you know, I, my again, my goal when writing it was that, I mean, I'm aware that a few people in the Edu Twitter bubble will read it. And that's, that's lovely. Um, I'm grateful to anyone who reads it, recommends it under those circumstances. I hope, and I'm aware that this, you know, maybe this is uh, hubris, but I, I hope that there's a chance that it will be read a bit beyond that as well. Um, that it will be, you know, that there will be trainees or NQTs and reading coordinators and leaders that read it and take something from it. Something that I think just to mention about the book for anyone who's, you know, sales pitch time, um, a, a key component of it is the fact that um, I've tried to make clear in the book which aspects of it are the reading research and which aspects are kind of, this is, this is what the reading research suggests. These are the limitations of that research. This is um, our best bets, yada, yada, yada. Um, from, and, and I've tried to make that clear alongside where I've then said towards the end of the book, okay, so how have I put that into practice? How would I put that into practice? Um, because... You, I think you need both. I mean, I want teachers, or I, I, would, I would hate school leaders to come away from reading it thinking, oh, so I have to do reading this way. No, not at all. If you, have, if you can construct a way of teaching reading that takes account of the evidence and the, and the discussion that is in the first kind of two thirds to three quarters of the book, then it doesn't matter if it looks nothing like the way I've done it. But at the same time, I think it would be foolish just to put across the evidence without then saying, oh, okay, and this is what it looks like. This is what I think it can, and in my school, does uh, look like in practice. Um, yeah, I, th I think you need both of those elements. Both of them are there. 
But I think it's important to keep those two quite distinct so that teachers can evaluate what they're already doing and say, well, actually, 70% of what we're doing already works or already is already in line with the evidence. Um, it's worth noting as well, I mean, just um, we were talking earlier about um, whole school change, and this is kind of relevant to that. Um, I read uh, something, that, or it might be mentioned by Neil, one of your former guests, uh, about Gusky and this idea of teachers buy into something when they see it works. So it isn't when they've, um, it's not, it's, it, it, it's not though you're selling it to them, that's not how you persuade them. You persuade them you by making it work and then they see it in the classroom and then they see the outcomes of it and then off they go. As much as I'd love to espouse that view myself, if I'm thinking honestly about my 14 years of teaching, there is far too much noise amongst the signal to be able to say, I did this and it had this significant out outcome. I've, I've never done that. I've, I've changed things really considerably in classrooms and very rarely have I been able to say, wow, that had this massive impact. The only things that have really massive impacts are you know, much more time on something, um, et cetera, et cetera. Like adding much more time on something, um, being able to specifically teach what children need, the gaps they have, rather than wherever they're supposedly up to in the curriculum. Those things make a massive difference. That said, um, I do think that while um, there's no one thing, in, 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 I don't think actually in any element of education, there's any one thing that you can do that's going to have these dramatic changes in outcomes. It reminds me, of, like looking at the reading research and the way it fits together, reminds me of um, what, when people talk about the uh, British Olympic cycling team, how they're streets ahead of everyone. There's a significant difference. But you ask them to pinpoint what makes that happen. They're like, well, it's not one thing. It's all of these 50 small things where we gain a little edge, which adds up to something significant. I think that's absolutely the case with what I'm trying to put across in the book in that the you know, use of fluency practice, um, extended reading, making sure that children spend a significant amount of time each day decoding, um, use of the codable books, uh, the way that you structure your curriculum to in include reading, um, the way in which you um, focus on background knowledge and rather than um, vocabulary and how to teach it via morphology, instead of what most schools do, which is take exams and build their teaching they like retrofit their teaching to say, oh, this is what the exams want, so we'll do this. So completely getting rid of that as, a, as an idea of how you teach reading. I think all of these things have small impacts in and of themselves, but it's only together that you might see kind of major outcomes. Anyway, sorry, yeah. So that's, that's why I think people should buy the book, because I think it's going to be quite good. Nice, that's fascinating. Um, and it's due out in May? Uh, no, a bit later now. Um, it's either June or July, as it stands. Um, the, it's, 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 with, it's with Sage, or it's, it's Sage Corwin, I believe, officially. Um, I'm told that, there are, that Corwin is like the name of Sage in America, and they're trying to expand into the UK. So, you know, obviously I'm the flagship. <laughs> I can't even say that. I'm the flagship for their brand. No, no, I'm just, you know, I'm just along for the ride. But, yeah, I... I won't lie. Obviously, I, 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 I'm pretty self-conscious. Generally, I wouldn't have dared once I'd written it. If I didn't think it was decent, I would have just, like so many things I've written in the past, 
it, I would have just left it on my laptop um, or left it, you know, in the waste paper basket if I didn't think that it could be beneficial. So, yeah, hope people will like it. No, uh, I, I think it's got the potential to change the game. So I'm Are you really looking forward to that in a couple of months' time. So research is obviously a big part of your engagement with education. And it'd be great if you could describe your process for taking research and making it useful in the classroom. Uh, yeah, I mean, it is, I hope, uh, I like to consider it a big part of what I do. Um, I'd say the first thing that I do when I come across research that I'm that interests me or that I think has value, um, obviously the two go hand in hand, um, is that I tend not to do anything with it immediately. I tend to just sit on it, let it like bubble, let it brew for a while. Um, not just because um, I think that you want to avoid rushing into decisions based on something you're immediately enthusiastic about, but also because it gives me a chance to ask for and just naturally come across the arguments against, you know, the, the, the caveats to that research, the circumstances where it works, where it doesn't work, and the fact that this is research that's only taken place with, you know, university graduates, or this is, or perhaps it is research that's worked in the classroom, but it's worked with um, uh, intervention groups of two or three children at a time. So it gives, it gives you a chance to kind of pick it apart a little bit more, to be a bit more cynical. Um, so, yes, yeah, so the first thing I do is I sit on it. Um, a few months down the line, ideally, um, and this is the case with everything I talk about with regards to reading research, at least, and I hope um, we'll also be able to be something I do in the future, is that I try and put it in place in a classroom myself first, just to see, um, I was about to say, to see whether it works. But again, thinking about what I said previously, there's, there's so much signal amongst, uh, there's so much noise, sorry, amongst the signal that knowing whether something has worked with this particular cohort compared to, well, yeah, they're reading, whether that, knowing whether it's worked is almost impossible because yes, their reading results have gone up a little bit more than previous classes you've had, but were they children that were not, had, weren't properly assessed at the start of the year? Were they children that you've taught particularly well in another way, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't worry too much about the results of it as such. I want to, but I do want to see how can, how can I make it a function in the classroom? What the, what's the nitty gritty? What's the pragmatic side of, of side of things? Like, you know, do I need to photocopy things in advance? Do I need to have something ready on the screen? Does this work better with a visualizer or a whiteboard? That kind of stuff. Because again, when we're talking research in action, it has to be, it all, obviously it plays out in a classroom environment. So it has to be, well, how does this fit with our kids and our classrooms and our equipment? Um, so yeah, sit on it, <laughs> try it myself in the classroom. Then generally speaking, um, if it's something I'm quite passionate about, it might be something I think really has value. Ideally, again, this is an ideal, I'll ask teachers across the school, not everyone, but a few, maybe just to try bits and pieces out and then to give me feedback so that they, I can see how it might work in different year groups. Something that works in my head might not be something that I am capable of explaining coherently enough and simply enough so that a busy classroom teacher can, can use it in an effective way. And sometimes you have to be willing to say, no, this isn't something that's going to work. Not because any lack of capability but because it took me 30 hours of reading to wrap my head around it 
And the only way for teachers to wrap their head around it is 30 hours of reading. And that isn't, right now, that isn't 30 hours well spent. They've got other things to focus on. So be, be willing to ditch it, but having a, giving it a chance in other classrooms. Um, I'd say those are the key steps in terms of research. Again, ongoing discussions with people who have already tried to put this into practice um, go a long way as well. But th those are kind of my key um, aspects of, it, it links quite tightly with how I try to make whole school change. I think that could be an important two or three minutes because that sounds almost identical to the process that, you know, for instance, Lloyd and I put into place when we explored storytelling. So we had an inkling of an idea, did a lot of reading, write it out over a period of two years or so um, and refined it. You know, we, we spoke about it at uh, a Kent Mass conference. You know, we took notes, you know, we were fortunate that um, Anne Watson was in the audience and so she could feed back to us and, and then we could refine it over time. Um, but I think we've both independently developed that system and that way of working. And I think if anyone listening who is at the very start of their journey in terms of taking research and making it useful, you know, both as a leader or as a, as a teacher, um, I hope they, they'll be able to refer to that because, um, you know, I think it, it covers all of the major um, facets that I would take into consideration when I'm exploring research. And like, I like to have a, a one or two year lag between what I'm reading now and when that yeah. becomes something I'll tell other teachers about, you know, because it's so important. Sorry, it's so that lag is so important because the, we de we're dealing with children's education. So yes, that means we need to be taking advantage of everything that we can to improve it. But it also there has to be a sense of caution involved before you go. Okay, here are learning styles or thinking hats or even something positive like oh, here is how we're going to make sure retrieval practice works in our classroom. As soon as I speak to someone who's rolling out change and they say. Oh, okay, so I was at a course last week, or I read about this a couple of weeks ago. I'm already thinking like alarm bells are going off in my head. It's a different thing when someone says, well, I read about this a couple of years ago, and I've been thinking about it since, and I've read this. Uh, yeah, it, it's, it, they are worlds apart in terms of uh, making change. I think anyone who tries to make any significant change off the back of... Um, off the back of just like one piece of research that they've read um, is setting themselves up for a major fall. It has to be, yeah, you have to have looked for the holes for, in it actively. And, and I think that's a difficult thing. It's a difficult habit to learn because once you think something's a good idea, you want, it's that confirmation bias, isn't it? You want it to be good. You want it to succeed. Whereas you, you have to be thinking, oh, okay, what if I'm wrong? <laughs> what if I'm wrong is arguably the most important um, question that a, se a senior leader, at least one who's involved in teaching and learning, can ask themselves. Before they make any change, you have to have a really good answer to, or a re you have to have really thought about what if I'm wrong. And the cynics and ultra pessimists uh, amongst us, I know I'm one of those, maybe find that a little easier than others. There are other things that I don't have. I have to work hard to have that, to push things over the line and to be brave enough to roll things out. And I have got respect for people who have that confidence. Um, but yeah, that, that side of things doesn't make, maybe come quite so naturally to me. But the, the cynical, oh, no, what if this is a terrible idea? 
that comes naturally to me. And I think that is an important instinct. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. And I can feel when I'm reading, I'm, I'm getting really passionate. Oh yeah, this sounds brilliant. And then you go, but you have to go back and look for those limitations um, because essentially it's your credibility in the, in school that rests upon it, you know, and, if you're, you know, for instance, basing school policy on something that was a study of 15 postgraduate, um, you know, uh, postgrad people, you know, looking for doctoral credits by taking part in research, that's a whole different ballgame to a study that uses children and that and based on on how things are in the classroom. And um, yeah, so I mean, for, for perspective on that, my I think the first three bits of research that I ever really kind of got. I wouldn't say passionate about, but I thought, ooh, this is interesting. Would have been during my PGCE, I was really fascinated and into mindsets. Um, I um, was very much into um, the the work that came out of, oh, what's the name of the chat? Hattie, Hattie's work and lots of stuff to do with visible learning. And from that, and a, and a lot of the bits and pieces that were in there, and I thought, oh, well, if it's in here and it's got a large effect size, then brilliant. And, you know, how can we go wrong um and the third thing was like reciprocal reading which again i think sort of maybe has a bit of value in some very specific circumstances but it's only when you try and pick it apart that you say oh yeah well this how how does this work in a class with 30 kids it doesn't it's it's just it isn't going to work in a class with 30 kids this is going to be it doesn't matter how good the outcomes appear to be if at any given time 26 of the kids or you know however many aren't in your guided group anymore are just embedding disfluency it doesn't matter how good it works for that group if you're only able to work with them for one day a week and then which is you know why i'm you know not an advocate of guided reading as the status quo way of teaching reading anyway but again so thinking back, first few things that I came across that was like, yeah, this makes a lot of sense to me. Well, in retrospect, you know, there, there's not a huge amount of applicable value in them. I mean, I think, I think mindsets is getting a bit of a hard time at the moment. I think there's a lot of sense behind it. I just think the data behind it is, if you actually just quickly say with mindsets, as part of my PGCE, I actually attempted to redo some of the research in, with um, kids in a given school. And when you actually dig into the questionnaires behind them and how they work and how children are assigned into the two kind of categories, like the performance or I can't remember the exact ones, the goal-orientated ones and the performance-orientated ones, it's basically you ask the same question six times um, as if they're different questions and you end up sorting these children with minimal differences into them as if they're two discrete categories. You only get halfway through doing that and think, Oh, okay. If this is what you're doing, then your your results are probably not trustworthy. I know that that's only a small aspect of the mindset research, and there is a lot of common sense, I think, behind it. But yeah, it just goes to show that um, it's very easy to let enthusiasm run away with you when it comes to things you read. Yeah. No, I'm absolutely. Um, I think. I find when you use the strategy and the approach that you sort of outlined, teachers will feed off of that confidence that has been earned through the work, the, you know, the groundwork that you've done, the legwork. Um, and so some of the things that we introduced maybe three years ago, teachers are now doing much more effe- effectively and efficiently than I could ever have imagined. You know, so they've, they've taken an idea and tried it out with me and then, and then run with it, you know, so it becomes something, you know, not necessarily as the research described, but 
which keeps in mind sort of the fundamental ideas and then makes it applicable to schools. And I think that buy-in comes from, in part, you know, the amount of legwork that you're prepared to do in advance, like you say, that, that lag. So at the minute I'm reading about um, subtraction by addition, but I have no intention of looking at, um, you know, effective methods and which is best in a, in a classroom setting before I've done a whole lot more reading um, because, you know, I think that's what we need to do. Um, and I think, again, you know, this is, this is flowing quite well. And the next question is about your research Thunderbolt, um, which is the, the, the paper that took the scales from your eyes, you know, woke you from your slumber. Um, what, what, what was your Thunderbolt moment? I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to apologise. This is going to be quite a rambling answer because there, is, there has to be a bit of backstory to this. Um, I taught for the first six or seven years of my career almost entirely without any sense of, without, with, not with any, but with very little sense of autonomy. In terms of how I taught each lesson, I tried to do what I thought was a really good looking version of whatever senior leadership at the time thought was a good idea. So I literally, like I said before, I, I taught maths for a year in guided groups, you know, like, like guide, so I worked with a small group and then everyone else was working independent on their own thing. And I'd end up teaching the same thing two or three times to groups of about six or eight children. Um, I taught with Kagan, everything through Kagan cooperative strategies. Um, I, at one point had thinking hats. I didn't really ever use those properly, but they were certainly in my books, you know, to, to so it was only in about kind of year seven or eight of my teaching career where I started to get enough confidence to go, well, actually, you've all said quite positive things about my teaching when, and in most cases, I'm doing completely different things to what I did 12 months ago. So maybe none of you know what you're talking about. Maybe none of us do. Maybe we're all just kind of desperately grasping at whatever we can find. Um, and started teaching in my own way and one of the things that that jumped that had jumped out to me over the years was the fact that we hadn't um there wasn't any anywhere near enough focus on making sure children actually remembered the stuff that we taught every year teachers just said as if it was like with really blase oh well they, they never remember it do they and you think well okay so why is why is this the end of a conversation and not the start of a conversation that should that should be the start of a conversation not the end of one when we're saying okay so how so that we should be saying oh how do we get children to remember stuff and i started playing around with ways to get children to remember stuff and after a couple of years effectively i got to the stage where the first 20 minutes of any given lesson particularly with children who were struggling first 15 to 20 minutes of any lesson was links between whatever i was about to teach and former stuff and what we would term retrieval practice it also linked to motivation stuff because when I was working for a while, I worked with children who were really, really struggling. Um, and a lot of that was starting the first three or four, letting them start the lesson with something familiar, building up their confidence was a really, you know, valuable thing. But anyway, the reason, the, the reason I mention all this and I have this back, this build up is that um, as so many teachers have done, I was listening to uh, a Craig Barton podcast and he had, uh, and I'd listened to a few at this point, I was really enjoying them. And he had Elizabeth and Robert Bjork on, I believe. Um, and effectively, I looked into what they described as the new theory of disuse and the importance of forgetting. And 
So this is going to sound... So I, if, if there's such a thing as a thunderbolt in my career, it was that, realising that, oh, hang on a minute, and this is going to sound really patronising, and I apologise to every teacher for what I'm about to say, but I spent the first six or seven years of my career because of where I worked and circumstances, feeling ever so disappointed that teaching wasn't remotely um, an academic or intellectual pursuit. It was a... It was it was like Michael Gove thought, you know, it's just you know, you just something you learn on the job, you know, and there is obviously an element of that. But realizing from reading that paper and finding how difficult parts of that paper were to understand the 92 paper by the Bjorks, whether it's, it's actually a conference paper, I believe, and realizing that, oh, God, no, I'm going to have to read this two or three times was such an exciting feeling for me. It felt like a, an awakening because it reminded me. It's suddenly, I was suddenly intellectually curious about teaching and in a way that I had only been on a practical day-to-day level. And this was the first time that I'd really been thinking about it on an abstract level. And again, that reflects as much on me as on anything about the education system. Um, I like to think I was still doing a decent job for those first six or seven years. I'm fairly confident I was, but I did not regard it it as uh, an intellectual or academic pursuit directly and that particular podcast and reflecting on that paper um was a big change for me also being able to see that oh, i'm going to sound like one of those really boring old farts who says that oh well all of this research stuff it's just saying stuff we already know it's like yes partly not entirely but partly but it's telling me stuff that i know and it's giving me some basis upon which to feel that there's a little bit of the things that you work out sometimes for yourself, I could have known about six or seven years before. I could have been doing six or seven years before. Maybe I didn't need to do the thinking hats. Maybe I could have been structuring my lessons in a way that suited the children and the topic that I had in front of me a little bit before. I think one of the other reasons why that struck me as a thunderbolt was it was conveniently timed. I listened to a podcast, um, nothing to do with uh, education really, directly by an American series um, called radio lab and it talked that there was in there's um, an episode called it's either called memory and forgetting or it might be called forgetting memory brilliant it's a brilliant episode i if, if people take one thing away from this this episode of stuff today is go and find radio lab and listen to that but it talked about how um the process of uh, create uh, the process of remembering something is a creative process effectively what we do we don't we don't store it as such and then bring it out exactly as it is we we largely recreate it um so for example if you speak to a couple who have been together for 40 years and one of them they they're talking about the day they first met and one of them says oh you know what i haven't thought about that at all but i remember that we were at a train station and i brought you flowers yada 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 and the other person says oh i've thought about this every day for the last 40 years we weren't at a train station and you didn't bring me flowers it was actually a post office and yada 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 the person with the more reliable memory is likely to be the first person because the act of recreation is a bit like a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy particularly for episodic memories like that and i just happened to listen to that radio lab episode before i then read this uh, paper by um by the Bjorks and it's the combination of those two and seeing that oh wow this thing I'm really interested in that has nothing to do with education 
is relevant to education was that's why that was a thunderbolt. It was just lucky that these things came together at the same time to make me go, oh, bloody hell, education's really, really interesting. This can actually be a hobby as well as, a, as my profession, which is exactly what it's become. Yeah, a, f- a fantastic choice. Um, I think I, I probably read that at least once a year, maybe more, because um, various papers in the references, you know, go on, and it takes you in many different directions. Um, and I often, quite often get sucked into reference wormholes and we'll have whole lists of papers that I need to read um, you know, off the back of something. And that's definitely one of them. Um, and I think, you know, all of, of the guests on the show have mentioned Craig Barton's podcast. So I think we owe him an enormous debt of gratitude as a profession because he opened the doors to you know, so many great minds, you know, and, when, and, you know, I think the world is a different place and a much better place in my opinion. Um, as a result of that. Yeah, I mean, my first exposure to to the Bjorks, my first exposure to, I mean, even to people that I've been fortunate enough to like interact with briefly um, on Edu Twitter, um, really experienced teachers that really know their stuff about maths. I'm not going to name names, not going to embarrass anyone um, or myself. But, you know, you, you hear them on a podcast and then you see that they, they, there they are on Edu Twitter and you can talk with them and pick their brains about stuff. And often they've got the time and the enthusiasm about the subject. It's, yeah, I, I, I don't think that there is, at least for my generation of teachers, I'd be surprised if there is a more influential educator out there. And I know that's going to, you know, frustrate a lot of people because there are people who who you know been around the block and have um, dedicated their lives to teaching, etc. But for my generation of teachers, constantly you come across people who say that, oh yeah, um, that that awakening happened with Craig Bar- with Craig Barton's podcast. It is ridiculous. I mean, I'd also say, I mean, just as an aside, while um, I think his, I, I love, I enjoyed his first book. That was a really important book for for me in starting that journey into educational research. Um, I actually think it's his second book that, I mean, if any, if for less so for primary teachers, but if you're a secondary teacher out there and you are interested in someone who has clearly thought about a particular way of teaching with remarkable depth, um, then his second book is, it's remarkable. I think it's, I, I feel like it should have had more fanfare this year because everyone mentions his first book. And that's great. That's really good. But his second one is, I, I think that's a really telling contribution to secondary mathematics. Um, yeah, so I, I, I feel like the least I can do is deservedly plug his second book because it is brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. This year has been a very strange year. I think the quality will bear out over the, over the long run. You know, because yeah, I... I, I hope it. I hope his second book becomes as well known as his first, because I think. I, yeah, I just think it's a much. I actually think it's a much stronger book, and it, it deals in something that's much rarer. The first book you can find a lot of that diving into educational research. Yes, it's in a maths context, but you can find the diving into educational research from from other excellent writers. You know, people who have really clearly put this stuff out there, like Carl Hendrick and you know, Didow and Willingham and, and lots and lots of people have explicated this stuff really um, precisely and well. But his second book, I read that and thought, oh, as a secondary math teacher, this would be really fascinating. Um, so, yeah, a bit of a plug there. Nice. 
And then the next paper is the one that you think every primary teacher has to read. Okay, I speak a lot with caveats because of how self-conscious I am most of the time. But um, I think it it depends. If people read my book, right? Or no, let's assume they don't because that's a safer assumption. Anyone who happens to listen to this and be thinking, no, I'm not reading your book, mate, no interest. (laughs) If you're not going to read that, then I'd recommend Ending the Reading Wars, which is a paper that summarises the... I mean, even if you are going to read my book, read that anyway. Um, it's, I don't agree with everything in it. I think it's too far too cautious about its conclusions on systematic synthetic phonics, etc. But it's a really fascinating overview of reading research. You can, you can read it in an hour or so, and it is a starting point for so much. I mean, it's, it's a really brilliant paper. I mean, depends how you define a research paper because this is largely a, co- a collection of research, which is what I most I find most fascinating often, or what is the start of many a journey for me. Um, so that one. But putting that to one side, if you do read my book, then instead I'd go in a very different direction. Um, again. A research paper, is it research? Not really, but it's a paper and I love it a bit. Uh, I, I hope I'm probably going to pronounce this wrong, so apologies uh, involved here. But Lipping Mars or Liping Mars, uh, Lipping Mars, three approaches to um, addition and subtraction. It's It seems like an odd choice. It's a bit niche. It just looks at, um, It compares the way that number bonds inside 20 are taught in in an Anglo-American context and in a, um, I think, specifically a Chinese context. And it looks at the precise step-by-step journey to developing number bonds inside 20 um, in in the latter context. And in a lot of cases, here are the number bonds, do lots of them, some of you have succeeded great. Some of you have failed. Well, never mind. Way of doing number bonds that seems to be, in my experience, quite common in uh, English schools. So, yeah, that it, can, it opened my mind massively to the, the ways that potentially I was teaching number bonds wrong. And while it sounds like it only applies to number bonds, it really kind of in terms of like the scales falling from my eyes, I'm not going to say this was a Thunderbolt paper or whatever, but it did um, make me start to think about the foundations of each bit of mathematics I taught with a great deal more clarity. I mean, actually, I think the paper itself could go further because it talks about how the number of ones inside 20 are built upon um, number of ones inside 10 and uh, understanding place value so that you can add to 10 quickly. It, it talks about, I don't think it directly talks about... Um, or how children can learn the associative principle further down the school so that they're ready for this. But actually a lot of what's in there is built upon things like an understanding of the associative principle on the on an understanding of perceptual and then conceptual subitizing um, or subitizing, both pronunciations. I get in trouble whichever way I pronounce it. But yeah, so, so that paper, Living Mars, Three Approaches, fascinating stuff, changed how I thought about number bonds, but also how I thought about... Um, the lineage of mathematical ideas. Nice. Um, both fantastic papers. Thank you very much, Chris. It's been an absolute pleasure today, Christopher. Thank you very much for... Oh, it's, um, I've loved it. You know, you know I like 
talking and uh, particularly about stuff that relates directly to me. So, yeah, thank you so much, Kieran. It's been a pleasure. And good luck with the book in June 2021. Yeah, uh, I'm going to plug it. I'm going to do that thing that people do. Um, The Art and Science of uh, Teaching Primary Reading, yeah, is out in July, hopefully. Um, It's going to be quite good, I think, and useful. So please buy it. I'm sure sure a lot will. It's going to be a game changer. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. And there we have it. A truly fascinating chat full of superb insights into the world of primary education. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like, subscribe, follow or leave a review, depending on where you're listening. And if you have any questions for any of my guests, head over to the Thinking Deeply About Primary Mathematics YouTube channel and leave a comment and let the conversation continue long into the night. Until next time, thanks for listening.